Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Eberhard Wolf. Eberhard is an IT architect and a consultant who works on areas that are at the intersection of technology and, and business. He's a popular international conference speaker and author who has written extensively about microservices. Eberhard is the author of a number of LeanPub books in English and German, including Microservices Primer and Microservices A Practical Guide, and most recently Microservices Recipes. You can read Eberhard's website at evolf.com. That's Wolf with two Fs. Um, and you can follow him on Twitter at evolf. Also, uh, not surprisingly, with two Fs. He also has a blog that I'll link to in the transcription for this interview um, and a YouTube channel that I'll also link to. In this interview, we're going to talk about Eberhard's background and career, his professional interests, uh, his books. And at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a writer and an author. So thank you, Eberhard, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you got interested in computers and technology generally. Yeah, so I grew up, grew up in Germany in the northern part of it and near Hamburg, and uh, I got a computer when I was uh, 13, so an 8-bit machine, and uh, started doing basic assembler, these kinds of things, and uh, then I studied computer science at the University of Hamburg, um, yeah, and I enjoyed enjoyed the the studies quite a lot and uh, that is basically how i how i got started and i guess originally um i enjoyed computer games of course i guess like a lot of people did and um i also really liked uh, computer graphics nowadays i'm more into software development software architecture these kinds of things um yeah you mentioned that you got a degree in uh computer science i i believe if i read um your linkedin profile correctly it was from the university of hamburg um uh, yes. I was wondering if you were starting out again now in a career in tech, or if you were, you know, giving advice to your to a younger version of yourself who was starting out now. Would you would you recommend doing a computer science degree again? Um, for other people, I'm not sure because I see too, a lot of people who have skills from other backgrounds. Uh, so people who, who started in a career in something completely different, they moved to computing and really uh, have a deep knowledge about technologies and really get, um, are really capable of, of doing quite a lot of things. So I think it's not really necessary to do these kinds of, of uh, computer science studies. It's just that you have to have those skills and where you got them from that's not too interesting i think um i myself i enjoyed studying at the university of hamburg a lot so um i learned about agile and i mean that was basically last century and uh, i also got started in java which is still useful today so i think i really learned a lot of very uh, practical things and also I enjoyed um, theoretical computer science a lot because I think it's a real intellectual challenge um, and um, I still remember that the first language we actually uh, were taught was a functional programming language so that was something that was entirely different from what I was used to and I thought that was quite quite interesting and you know an intellectual challenge and I would never have thought that this would be handy at one point, but nowadays with the hype about functional programming, uh, it's 
actually quite quite great that um, I had that education. So I wouldn't miss it. But I think there are quite a lot of people who uh, are totally happy without going to university. And I think that's fine, too. And uh, I'm, I'm curious, what was it like studying in Hamburg? Um, I confess I've never been there. Is the city a distraction to a, a devoted university student? Uh, it is a very beautiful city, and I still like it a lot. So it's basically where, sort of, where I grew up. And of course, there is there is a lot of nightlife there too. So there is the famous Reeperbahn, and um, and I would encourage you to go there if if you ever come to visit Hamburg. Um, yes, but um, I. I have to admit that that I was probably more one of the boring guys, so I spent a lot of time actually really doing uh, my studies. And uh, as I said, the the university is is really great. So at that when I studied there, it was really enjoyable. And um, again, if I if I read your LinkedIn profile correctly, uh, you you spent some years working for uh, big companies before making the change to become a freelance consultant. Is that is that correct? Um, I have worked for quite a few different companies. So I started my career at an IT consultancy, and basically I'm I'm working at an IT consultancy now too. And um, I used to work for uh, SpringSource, the company behind this, uh, the Java Spring Framework. Um, and SpringSource got acquired by VMware, and that is when I was really working for a huge company. I mean, VMware uh, is is quite a huge company, and um, that was probably the largest one that I ever worked for. And what is it about? The, I mean, I'm asking because many, a great many uh, Lean Pub authors uh, have often chosen the path of freelance consulting, and I was just wondering what it was about that that lifestyle that attracted you. The last time that I did some some freelancing, it was about um, doing some more hands-on work. So I had a management position before, more like, you know, uh, talking about architecture strategy and these kinds of things. And I really wanted to do some some hands-on work. So I got... I got a nice thing that I could do, a nice job that I could do as a freelancer, and that's how I started. Nowadays, I'm working for InnoQ, which is a consultancy, and um, I th- and it's it's a German and Swiss consultancy, so we are about 120 people working throughout Germany and Switzerland. And what I really enjoy about this one is that there is a group of people that you belong to, and there is a lot of uh, knowledge exchange inside the company. So if you look at my, my latest book, The Practical Guide to Microservices, um, it actually, in the acknowledgements, there's actually a huge number of colleagues that I had to uh, that I thanked for because they uh, got involved in in the book and provided me with a lot of feedback, and I think that's very valuable. And um, at InnoQ, we also have a lot of freedom, so um, we we have we can basically choose what we want to work on. Um, we have a lot of uh, events where all of the company comes together and uh, discusses things, so it's really enjoyable. Um, I would say that I'm not a freelancer by nature, uh, so I can do it if I want to. But with my current position, I'm actually much more happy than than I was uh, as a freelancer. Um, speaking of freedom, uh, that leads me actually to my next question, which is a little bit specific. But um, in Germany, uh, given the country's productivity, 
Um, you have what I think what many people would consider to be a pretty successful model of works councils. Um, I've had a little bit of experience with that system myself. I was once working a 110-hour-a-week job in London as an investment banker, and at one point we were doing a deal in Germany, uh, and I had to deal with some accountants in Frankfurt. And I remember one time uh, this accountant, very, very, very hardworking, very good guy, uh, apologizing that he had to stop work at 5.30 because he had no choice. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about that system insofar as, as you're, you're, you're aware of it. And, and how, does, how does that affect, I guess I'm asking, how does that affect someone like you? Um, well, first of all, there's actually a, a law in Germany, I believe, that says that you are not supposed, that you're not allowed to work more than 10 hours a day uh, for a longer period of time. Um, and I have to admit that um, uh, I think the spirit of that law makes a lot of sense. And generally speaking, the whole uh, laws about labor, uh, labor in, in Germany make a lot of sense and also the, the strong uh, unions. In our uh, industry, it's a little bit different because uh, at the end of the day, it's about uh, the people, the the. I think the difference is that the employees really have the power, not the employer, because uh, there are there they are in so high demand i mean capable tech people are in so high demand uh, that the employer has to think twice whether uh, he wants to to do anything to them that makes them quit um having said that uh, I think in our industry, there are a lot of people who are really motivated by the problem at hand and working on it. And um, then it seems to be a little bit odd to stop after 10 hours and, you know, to to follow those laws. Um, and I think quite a lot of people have a hard time following them. Uh, however, on the other hand, uh, there is a huge problem in our industry and that is uh, burnout. And that is because, you know, burnout by Basically, the term itself means that people are burning for, for what they are doing. And um, at one point, you just have to stop because otherwise there is just work and uh, there is nothing else. And um, for that reason, I think those limits um, actually do make um, some sense. I try to be ironic about it so if you follow my twitter uh, my my uh, twitter account um i talk about how you know there should just be work and work and that's pretty much all there is to life but this is really meant ironic and um as a matter of fact i think uh, nowadays uh, it's much more important that people are actually happy and uh, that uh, that you don't work too much because it's just not sustainable and um, it's it, i mean the, the the number one problem that we have in our industry are people uh, who are well burned out and can't really work anymore it's not about being you know get uh, phys being physically harmed but these kinds of things that that are a real threat i would say to your to your health uh, concerning work um yeah, so that's pretty much how, how I think about it. Speaking of the quality of work, one thing I, I did notice um, looking at your Twitter feed was that uh, you have an interest in promoting the importance of providing people with good equipment if they're going to work for you. Uh, we, we have a similar philosophy at LeanPub, and I just wanted to uh, give you an opportunity to give your views about, about this issue. Yeah, I, I, I think it just 
it should be, just be a no-brainer. And that is actually what it is at InnoQ. So you can just get whatever hardware you want. And um, that's the way it should be. Because if you look at uh, the money that... Um, the money that we uh, that our labor costs and uh, how much that 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 is a lot of money compared to uh, the price of the hardware so i think it's just illogical to provide uh, people with old hardware or hardware they they don't like um there was one tweet that said well this is really about um the people and uh, telling them that they are uh, valuable but i think it's just at the end of the day it's just the logical thing to do it's not about just about uh, the people and uh, valuing the people it's about um, getting most out of your money as uh, as an employee as an uh, employer and um, that is the reason why i think uh, you should just provide people with the hard way they they want um one of the pleasures of this podcast is that I get to interview writers from around the world. Um, and one thing I like to do is ask people for their views on things the rest of us might be hearing about where they live, but don't really understand beyond the headlines. Um, and if you're up for it, um, I'd like to ask if you could talk a little bit about the uh, AFD, or I think it's pronounced Alternativa für Deutschland. Um, what's up with that? Yeah, uh, so that is something that I uh, probably talk about uh, in my Twitter feed too. So it's uh, it's a party in Germany that uh, gained uh, about 13% in the last election. And it's a very weird, well, it's um, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrants. And um, at some points, it's bordering uh, on being basically the old uh, Nazi party again, because uh, what they say is that we should be proud of our uh, uh, of our soldiers in the Second World War, um, they do have some anti-Semitic uh, people in in their uh, in their party uh, and these kinds of things. And um, I'm the reason why I'm upset about it is because, um, in my, in my opinion, what I'm what I'm proud about in Germany is that um, I thought. That we, the way that we handled uh, our legacy with the Third Reich was actually pretty good. And uh, I thought it would never happen again. And these days I'm not that sure anymore because um, sometimes as you, if you listen to those people and if you take close note, um, you're basically like, okay, if I change Muslim for Jew in that sentence, it you know, it it basically is like those sentences that we we've heard in in the past, and I'm not sure whether people actually notice that. Uh, so that's why I'm uh, upset about it, and why I keep talking about it. And also, uh, one thing that is important to me is this. Uh, paradox of tolerance that says that uh, you in a if you tolerate people, um, that's fine, but you must not tolerate people that want to uh, kill off tolerance itself. Um, it's by, by the philosopher Popper, and basically it means that if there is a threat to, uh, society, to the free society itself, uh, you have to fight against it. And I'm not sure whether people actually realize that because there are too many people that say, well, we need to listen to those people and um, I don't like that. So that's basically my approach on it.
Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for that answer. Um, uh, one of the curious things um, I find is the invocation that a certain segment of the population in a lot of places, the importance that they seem to place on some concept of pride um, that involves the rejection of negative legacy, uh, which is something I just can't, I, I, I just don't approach the world that way. To me, what could be stronger or more prideful than facing the truth when it's negative? Yeah, um, I I agree, and as I said, I think that is um, how how we dealt as a nation with uh, the Third Reich is. Yeah, it. I'm not sure whether I would uh, I should say I'm I'm proud about it. It's just um, somewhat unique, I would say, and uh, I hope that that it stays this way. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, tweeting about political issues. Um, this is a decision I think everyone who's who's a professional and who has a Twitter account and likes to tweet and likes to go on Twitter has to make uh, has to decide. You know, am I going to mm. mix mix politics with my professional tweets? Um, and you've you've decided to do that. And I wanted to ask you ask you about that. I mean, have you do you get any n negative reactions f for doing that? Surprisingly not. And I'm not sure. I mean, that is probably because there is a certain echo chamber that, you know, that 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 you live in and uh, those people provide you with with positive feedback, um, which in a way is great. I mean, um, the reason why I do this is because um, I, I actually try to be uh, to be. Um, I, I try to be to select the the statements that I make. Uh, so um, it is not about uh, a specific party. Uh, it is not about um, politics of of a specific party. It is about um, those people that I believe are actually try, uh, damaging de democracy itself and our our freedom basically. Um, and the rest is is basically fine. I mean, if you're conservative or, uh, you know, if you're left wing, that's all, all fine by me, as long as you, as you know, as you, you're, um, it, well, as long as you believe in democracy and uh, basic freedom and these kinds of things. Um, and the reason why I do it is because um, I think you must not be quiet about what's going on. Um, and uh, that is the reason I do believe that um, it is somewhat uh, weird to mix uh, professional stuff with these kinds of things. Uh, but I mean, the alternative would be to be quiet about uh, what really bothers me. And I don't want to do that. So that's why I've chosen uh, to be not quiet about it. And yeah, that's, that's basically the reasoning behind that. Yeah, thanks. That's a that's a great answer. Um, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you. Um, uh being forthcoming about about these issues. Um, uh, moving on to the subject of your books and your writing, um, I'd like to talk about microservices with you. Um, I talked about this on a previous podcast episode with Obi Fernandez, um, but for those who might not know, I was wondering if you could explain what microservices are. Yeah, to me, it's uh, basically a different way of modularizing your system. So um, if you build a huge system, then you come up with modules and that's a very old idea. Uh, so usually you would uh, write, you know, libraries or classes or some kind of, of source code structure uh, that make up your, your system. And uh, microservices are a different kind of uh, module in the sense that they are independently deployable. Uh, so 
that means if I have a large e-commerce system and I have one uh, part of the system that uh, handles the order processing and another one that does the invoicing, I could change one of those invoicing or order processing and uh, deploy it by itself without uh, deploying the other one. And that's, that has huge advantages. So if I want to implement a new feature, I just do it and deploy that one module and I'm, do uh, and I'm done. And if you implement those microservices with, you know, Docker containers or whatever you, you might choose, then you also have a freedom of technology. So I can write my stuff in Java and someone else can write it in Go, or we could also all write it in Java. But as soon as I want to deploy a bug fix to one library that I have, well, I can just do it and uh, the other microservices are not influenced. So to me, it is about modules and decoupling, decoupling deployment, decoupling technical decisions, also decoupling uh, scalability, uh, scaling, so I can scale each microservice by itself, um, decoupling and for security, so I can have firewalls between the microservices, and if one microservice is compromised, um, there is a firewall between that microservice and the next one, and so on and so on. So that's basically how I think about it. And what's the connection between microservices and Unix? Uh, yeah, well, there is this uh, story that microservices are like the Unix philosophy. Uh, so you write small programs like LS to uh, list the content of a directory. And then you write uh, other small programs like sort to sort uh, some stuff. And then you can have LS and uh, use the output of LS and uh, pipe that into sort. And then you have um, then you have a sorted listing of a directory. That's basically the idea. Um, and that is why microservices are often why, why people say that there is a Unix philosophy behind microservices. Um, I'm not sure because in a way that's actually true uh, because each of those microservices is, or each of those uh, command line tools is a separate program and you know it can be deployed by itself. So it makes some sense to talk about that as microservices. I think the difference in my opinion is that um, I tend to think about microservices rather as typically more coarse-grained and also more about, you know, domain logic, while Unix by nature is basically a technical thing that tries to solve technical problems. And um, what's the relationship between microservices and continuous delivery? I was wondering if you could sort of spell that out, like how are the two related? Oh, yeah. Um, actually, I did write um, a book about continuous delivery, too, so um, in, in German. And um, the relation... That, that was before I wrote the books about microservices. And uh, the story behind that is basically if you want to um, deploy your software more frequently, uh, continuously, then uh, at one point you need to think about, well, your modules. And maybe if those modules can be deployed individually, that's a huge advantage and makes continuous delivery easier. So... If you have one of those really huge systems where you deploy them like each quarter and uh, it takes you several weeks to test the whole thing, 
how can you achieve you know daily deployments or multiple deployments a day without changing the architecture and have you know more fine-grained parts so in my opinion continuous delivery is one of the goals uh, that you usually uh, that you usually want to achieve if you want to do if you do microservices uh, so like the goal is to deploy more frequently and uh, the way to do that is to use microservices because because otherwise you're stuck with your deployment monolith and uh, there is just no way that you can deploy that very frequently so that's the way i think about it and what are the risks or disadvantages of shifting to a microservices system or process yeah, that's a good question. And um, I have to admit, if I think, if I look at people doing microservices nowadays, they are focusing on, well, microservices, which is not such a bad idea. But um, the problem is, it's just a different way to do uh, modules. So if you don't have uh, the proper modulization, then microservices won't help you. So if you have a mess with all the modules um, interwoven into each other, you know, this, this big ball of mud, um, and you build that with microservices, then first of all, you pay the, the additional complexity uh, because you have to have all these individually deployable microservices and operation becomes much harder and these kinds of things. And uh, you don't really gain a, a benefit. And it's even worse because if you have a change to that system and you have to change multiple modules, multiple microservices at once, it's much harder to deploy that thing because you have to deploy more than one module and more than one microservice. So if you had a deployment monolith, you could still deploy you know, that deployment monolith and that would be possible to do but if you have microservices you would have to deploy all these microservices and that's much harder so i would argue that people should probably it's sort of a paradox they should probably not focus on on microservices first but they should focus on getting their architecture right and then they should implement those modules as microservices and that is where domain-driven design, bounded context, and these kinds of things um, come in and uh, they really help you to come up with those um, modules that are decoupled and that, that actually have a domain meaning and these kinds of things. And um, I guess a very specific question I have, does, that, does, does adopting a microservices regime, does that increase points of failure um, or potential points of failure? Um, that is a very good question. Um, so um, here is the reason why you could say no. Um, if I write, if I do a memory leak in my code, it's just my microservice that's going to crash. Um, and all the other microservices will continue to, to operate. So uh, in that sense, it's more stable than uh, a deployment monolith. Because in a deployment monolith, even if there is like a, a really unimportant small module and there is a memory leak in there, eventually the whole thing will, will crash. And uh, that will just not happen with microservices. Having said that, it depends on how you build your system. If that one microservice that crashes um, causes an error cascade and causes all the other microservices to crash too, 
then your system is actually less stable. And that is why resilience is important. That is why you have to think about um, if one of your microservices crashes, um, how do you keep the other one? How do you keep the other one operating? And uh, how do you build your system resilient? Because otherwise, it's actually going to be a less um, well less stable system because it's much more likely that the one of the parts will fail because there are more processes, there is network involved and more servers and these kinds of things. So it's just more likely that something will fail. And uh, then you should, yeah, you have to avoid the, the error cascade to make sure that, that the result of that is limited. Um, you, uh, you write a lot. Um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about your writing. Um, uh, you, you, for example, your books are in both German and English. And I was wondering, do, mm. you, do you write in German first or do you write in English first? Uh, so I have to admit that I write in German first because um, sort of I, I spend most of my time uh, in, in Germany and that's also where most of my customers are. So that is why um, I write the, the stuff in Germany because that is like my core audience. Um, and then um, I could convince my, my wife to translate uh, the stuff. She actually enjoys it. So uh, she does uh, the, the translation and then I go over it again and uh, then we have the, the English version of the book basically so that's roughly how it works and um, do you get uh, other people to review your writing before you publish it or after you publish it uh, do, do you have editors that you work with uh, definitely. So there is uh, the, the German publisher that I work with uh, D-Punkt and um, I I also get I get a lot of reviewers um, to that I work with anyway. Uh, so as I said in in my last book, the the practical uh, the practical guide to microservices, uh, I pass it around in my company. I ask people about their specific you know um, expertise um, and gave them specific um, chapters. Uh, so I try to make sure that every chapter is read by at least one additional person so that I get some feedback. And I really find that valuable. Uh, there is just, um, yeah, I, there, there is just no way that you can uh, write a proper book without um, a lot of reviews and external input. And, you know, at the end of the day, there is that name on the cover, but it, tells probably half the story because there is some there are so many other people involved and you know there there are the ideas that are uh, that they they tell you about and uh, inspirations and so on so it is it, even though it looks like the work of of one person it's really uh, uh, something that that a lot of people are involved in and have you done any in progress publishing like publishing one of your books i'm i'm actually not sure if you've ever used leanpub to publish something when it's 50% complete or something like that yeah i did that um however so the, the way that I work is uh, there is the German version and I pass around uh, chapters of that. So and then that is published in German and then I start the English translation. So when I start the English translation, the rule book's basically there. It just needs to be translated. Uh, so I, I have to admit that I don't really make a lot of use of those lean pub features where you start with a small book and, you know, you're not sure about the direction and you, you, you want to get some input. That's not the way that I work. Um, 
if, but that is just because I start with the German version and then then I do the, the translation. Oh, that 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 makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, I noticed that you've got your books up on Amazon as well, both in Kindle editions and in print editions. Um, and for those listening who might be interested in in publishing their own books, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about what what that experience has been like for you. Was it hard to get your books up on Amazon? Did you have any trouble doing that? Uh, it's actually quite easy because uh, Leanpub provides me with uh, the Mobi version of uh, my ebook, so I can just use that, uh, upload it at uh, it at uh, KDP, the the Kindle Direct Publishing platform, and uh, then off you go. And for the print version, I use CreateSpace, so that's print on demand. Uh, and it's again, it's very easy. So I just take the stuff that that uh, Limpa provides, the print-ready PDF. Uh, I add a cover, upload it to CreateSpace, and uh, that's pretty much it. Um, so, and you know, that is one of the reasons why I enjoy working with with Limpa because you get all these things like the printable PDF and uh, also the um, the. Uh, the easy way to do uh, Kindle Direct Publishing. So uh, that is clearly a benefit and uh, one of the, the huge values that, that Leanprop provides for me. I uh, noticed you're also on Goodreads. Um, uh, and I wanted to actually, actually, I don't know if I've ever talked to a Leanprop author about this this subject before, but Goodreads, for anyone listening, is a, is a uh, popular platform for authors authors to promote their books and for readers to talk about them. And it was bought by Amazon a few years ago. And yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about what that experience has been like. Has it helped you sell books, do you think? I have to admit, I don't think so. So uh, I am on, on Goodreads, as, as you mentioned. I'm not sure when I logged in the last time. So that has to be uh, some a few months back, I guess. Um, and I'm. I have to admit that I'm not sure how I can make that a useful marketing tool. So the marketing tool that I know is Twitter um, and uh, a few other things, you know, so I do conference talks, I do, you know, podcasts like like the one that, that I'm doing right now and uh, these kinds of things. So that is, uh, that is how I try to sell the books and I'm not sure how I could do that on, on Goodreads, but maybe I should take a closer look and try to figure that out. Have you done any experimenting with pricing on Amazon? I've, I've just read in the sort of self-publishing community, people talk a lot about that, like free giveaways or things like that. No. Um, so here is, here is the, the sort of, I guess I'm in a special position because um, the way it works is there is the German publisher and um, they they price the books at uh, at a specific price, um, and uh, which which makes a lot of sense. And by the way, in in Germany, uh, the prices for books are fixed, so no matter which um, which um, where you buy it, whether it's on Amazon or in a brick and mortar shop, uh, it's going to be the very same price. So. You know, Germany is somewhat special in that regard. Um, and um, the English version has to have a price that is comparable to the German price, because otherwise, I guess my publisher will be like, hmm, maybe, uh, you know, if, if your, your English book is so 
inexpensive, it, that doesn't really work uh, because we can't sell the, the German book. So basically the way it works is um, there are there is the German book, there is the English price, uh, the, the English version, and the price is basically set because there is the German price and it should be comparable. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense because why should it be a, a lot cheaper or more expensive just because it's in a different language? Um, not just in, in Germany, but worldwide. And then there are the sort of free books. Uh, so for the practical guide to microservices, there are the microservices recipes that you mentioned. And uh, that's like a brochure of, you know, 30 pages uh, or 40 pages maybe. And uh, you get, um, it has links to the sample code and it gives an overview about what uh, the real book is about. And uh, on LeanPub, those are basically free because uh, it's sort of marketing um, not just for myself, but also for for my for for InnoQ. So um, InnoQ actually um, provides those as printed books at you know conferences and these kinds of things. Uh, so I sell those for ninety nine cents at um, Kindle because that's you know the minimum price. And uh, the printed version is a little bit more expensive because, well, it has to be printed. So, you know, the, the price has to be a little bit higher. So I consider those actually free. Um, and then the, the other ones are basically uh, priced like the German ones. So that's how it works. Um, for my, I think, second last question, I'd, I'd like to kind of zoom right back out to 30,000 feet uh, based on something that you mentioned there, which was the rule in Germany that if you're selling a book, online for one price in one place you can't sell it online to german customers for another price in another place um and you know one thing you know we we because leanpub sells books on the internet to anyone around the world we encounter regulatory regimes from all over the place and germany is is i would say uh peculiar uh to some extent in its approach to regulating ebooks and things like that. And I was wondering if you if if you have an opinion about that. I mean or if you could if you could if if there's a way of explaining why Germany has this kind of relationship to books and book selling where it, it's sort of, you know, sensitive enough that there's actually legislation about like what price you can sell something for. Yeah, um so I I'm not sure how I feel about it, but uh, I, I guess sort of the story behind it is that uh, it's cultural stuff um, and uh, everyone should have, you know, I guess, equal access to those things. And there should not be a competition so that uh, the uh, the local bookshops are not um, still can, can uh, sell all the books. And by the way, um, ever since I can remember, um, if you go to a random bookshop somewhere, uh, they can basically uh, get any book, any German book um, to you the next day. So, and you know, that was even the case in the 80s. Um, so there is actually uh, a very, even before, before, um, before Amazon, there was a very strong, strong logistics behind that. And I think that is also because there's not such a fierce competition there. Um, that's basically how it works, I guess. That's, that's interesting. I mean, that, that reminds me of one, one um, 
occasional interaction that we have with customers is someone saying, I would like to buy a book on behalf of someone else. Um, and I would say the, you know, of, of all the many countries we get those requests from, there are more from Germany than from any other country. And you may, wow. you may have gone towards answering my curiosity about about that particular issue because you know it's it's very it that's it that would be a very unfamiliar thing for someone to do in Canada would be to go to someone and say can you get a book in in this in, can you go and buy a book online for me um but if if interesting the, if the idea of of going to a bookseller to get books for you is something that's been kind of entrenched in Germany but but also worked right because you, you've always been able to do it in Canada but it's like well they got to they've got to get out the catalog and maybe the maybe the warehouse will have it or won't or maybe it won't but if there's been if it's been conventional that you can just go to the bookshop and get any book you want in a day uh, I can see how that would be become just part of the way people think of things yeah oh and by the way talking about books and German regulations uh, there is a different uh, VAT on uh, books uh, compared to other products that's also quite interesting so it's 7% while other products are 19 and um actually I, I feel bad for not knowing the answer to this offhand but is the VAT on ebooks the same as the VAT on print books yeah that is the question that I was afraid of because I don't really know the answer um yeah I would uh, it might even be nineteen percent, so I would not, uh, need to to look it up. I have I I can't say. Rather, than but you know, make our users Google. I'll just take a moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think it's nineteen percent for eBooks. Yeah, it is, and you, or it was. you know. Yeah, there is this, I'm not sure whether it's an urban legend or whether it's really true, um, uh, but if people say that half of the literature about Texas is actually in German. So there you go. <laughs> I hadn't heard that before. Thanks for that. Um, uh, so the last question I always like to ask people uh, on this podcast um, is, if there was one thing about LeanPub that we could build for you or one thing we could fix for you, is there anything you can think of that you would ask us to do? Um, generally speaking, I'm very happy about, uh, about LeanPub. And I also like the idea with uh, the courses that you just started. So I think that's, that's great. Um, I have to admit that, um, as I said, the, the, uh, the books that I do that are more for marketing, um, I used to set the price at a dollar each, like the recommended price and the minimum price at, at zero dollar. Um, and I can't do that anymore. Um, I'm not sure whether that's actually a good or a bad thing because uh, it made me drop the price to zero dollars and therefore it's more clean cut. It basically means that it's really a marketing thing and just, just go ahead and, and get it. Uh, it, and that is actually what it was supposed to be like. So, um, yeah, that's, that is the one thing where I was like, hmm, is that really a good thing? But it's a very special situation. And I, I totally see why you did that change to the pricing model. And I'm, I'm quite happy with what it is right now. Yeah, thanks very much for that feedback. Actually, that's the first direct feedback I've had um, from an author and, you know, it sort of, as it were, uh, in, in uh, face to face, uh, even though. <laughs> face-to-face uh, -face over video. But um, yeah, recently, for those listening, we made a change at LeanPub. It used to be that the uh, the minimum price you could you could always set a book at was free, uh, but the minimum paid price was 99 cents. So you couldn't set up, sell a book for 59 cents or 89 cents. It could be 99 cents all the way up to $500. Um, and we recently changed it so that the minimum price is still free, but the minimum 
price in money terms that you can charge is four ninety nine rather than ninety nine cents and uh it we've got a long essay uh explaining <laughs> or, or, well uh, in part explaining this decision but yeah it, it's 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 interesting because the idea is that if if part of the argument is that if something is for marketing then it should be then then one approach you can mm. take is that it just ought to be free um if you sell something for ninety nine cents then it kind of this is all kind of like hard to pin down, but our our approach now currently that we're taking is that ninety nine cents just looks looks kind of cheap rather than like marketing. Mm. I mean, if, if if you want to get the reader to have it and you want them to think of it that way, then just just let them do two clicks. Why input any payment information, anything like that? Just get it into their hands as easily as you can, um, and then and then it kind of sets expectations for what books ebooks should cost and also another another this is kind of maybe not the strongest part of the argument but part of it too is that you know because of transaction fees and things like that um when you're selling a book for less than 4.99 you know your your margin on it is really low um and it's effectively free anyway from a royalties perspective yeah, and uh, I mean, I have to say that um, usually when I when I talk about those books, I I tell uh, people, you know, at a conference or so, I basically say it's free, and also on my homepage it says it's free. So I thought, well, maybe if someone gives me a buck, and that would be nice, and uh, that is uh, and. You know, basically what, what you did is, uh, or what, what LeanPub did is, uh, they t- if you told me that, uh, well, it should really be free. It should be marketing and it should be free, uh, uh, clear cut. And I think that makes, it probably makes a lot of sense. I still have to look at the numbers, whether the number of, of uh, copies that are downloaded uh, is increased. And at the end of the day, I mean, I didn't, because they were marketed as free books, uh, there were hardly anyone who who paid uh, anything for it, so uh, it uh, it was it was just a few dollars a month. It was really worth anything. Okay, okay. Well, uh, thanks very much uh, for this really fun interview, and thanks for taking the time for doing it out of your evening. Um, and I also wanted to thank you for uh, being a Lean Pub author. Yeah, uh, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thanks for providing that that great platform. And I'm looking forward to do more books and more stuff with it, uh, on it. Thank you. Thanks.